Well, good morning. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my name is Noel Grice, and I serve as an elder here at West Cohasset Chapel. And it's a privilege of mine to step into the pulpit as our brother Joe is away. Uh, and again, for those of you who don't know me, I've been married for seven years to my beautiful wife, Amy. Uh, that uh, makes me gasp at times. I can't believe it's been 17 wonderful years. It's been good. And we have three beautiful kids. Ethan is 16 already. Uh, Ellie, Elijah is 15 and Ellie's 11. As I was preparing uh, for the message today, uh, I was thinking back uh, to when they were younger. And I coached uh, Ethan Elijah in baseball and then Ellie in soccer. And uh, I was thinking on game days, uh, we'd you know, get the kids together and give them a, you know, a little encouragement you know, that you can do this. The game is coming, you've practiced, you've learned, and now it's time to apply. And, uh, and so when I went to sit down with my brother Joe, and uh, he gave me some encouragement, some guidance, I sat down, and one of the first things he said to me as I sat down was this. He said, Noel, preaching is one of the closest things a man will ever experience to childbirth. And I kind of, my heart just sank there as I thought back to my first child being born, my wife going through labor, uh, the intense pain, the anxiety that comes with that, that unknown and, uh, and so when Joe said that to me, it was kind of like, ugh, thud. I was waiting for that, you know, you can do this. And, uh, and I got the, it's going to feel like childbirth speech. But you know what? Um, I was thinking, it's one thing, I've seen mothers that have done this many times. And uh, what a blessing. I mean, when they get to that fifth, sixth child, if God's blessed them, I mean, it's, you know, they're... They're at a point in their life where they've experienced it, although it's not easy. It's going to be difficult until that child is there. Um, they've been through it. And uh, although this is going to be my first with you this morning, um, and men, maybe you will not fully understand this unless you've been behind the pulpit. I think women, you, because of the fact that many of you have been through childbirth, um, might understand what I've gone through. I've been in labor for about two weeks, and praise God, it's delivery day. All right. All right, well, with that said, the passage I'm going to be delivering to you today with the help of the Holy Spirit is found in Revelation 2, 12 to 17, and if you please turn with me, it's page number 868 in your church Bible. Uh, last week, we walked through Christ's letter to the church of Ephesus who left its first love. And today, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17, which is Jesus' church, uh, letter to the church of Pergamum, or Pergamos, either uh, pronunciation is correct. And this letter is one of rebuke. It's a call to repentance because Christ's church at Pergamum is engaged in a compromise, has begun to join itself with the world. Now, as I work through this letter to Pergamum, a weight overcame me because of the similar compromises that I see within professing, professing Christians today. I see it in the church today, 
it weighed heavy on me because as I prepared, I knew it was going to be difficult to stand before you. And so as we work through God's word today, I pray that each one of us will carefully examine our hearts, will carefully listen to see if there be any wicked way in us, that the Holy Spirit will lead us to Christ as the only one who can deliver us. Amen. And let's begin now uh, by reading the words of the Lord, our Savior, in Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. Would you bow and pray with me as we ask for uh, the help of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we glory in all that you are. Father, as I stood last night staring up at the heavens, at the stars, I gloried in your majesty. Lord, I feel so weak at times when I glimpse your majesty and the wonder of uh, the gift you've given us in your son. And Lord, as I work through this text, uh, as difficult as it was for me, Lord, I know that your power is made perfect in weakness. And so I pray for your church this day, Father, that we would have ears that would hear, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our eyes to truth, uh, that this world is not our home. And Father, that you've prepared a place for us. And Lord, um, so change our hearts this day. Holy Spirit, come sanctify us in truth as we work through this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, today, all that's left of the city at Pergamum, which is now modern-day Turkey, are ruins. But when the Apostle John wrote his letter to the church there, it was one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire. Pergamum had a unique status that was different than any other city because it was the capital and political center of Asia Minor. It was from Pergamum that all rulings were made that affected the whole of Asia Minor. Now, the people of Pergamum were inventors and innovators. They perfected a writing material made out of calfskin known as parchment. Pergamos literally, literally means parchment and took its name because of this great achievement. The city's Acropolis rivaled Athens, and its library was the second largest in the ancient world. Its collection of writing was so great that Roman general Mark Antony presented it as a wedding gift to Cleopatra. To the eyes, Pergamum was no doubt a beautiful city, but there was darkness there, like no other, as we read in verse 12. 
The people of Pergamum were known as the temple keepers of Asia. The city had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor, another to the goddess Athena, and there was the great altar of Zeus, the king of the great Greek gods. So the people of Pergamum worshipped numerous gods, like many cities in that day, but what was different about this city is that it was the first city that actually had a temple built to Caesar. And Caesar was no longer seen as a political or military leader. He was now seen as a god. Once a year, the citizens of Rome were required to stand before two centurions, throw a pinch of incense into the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. As long as you worship Caesar, you were allowed to worship other gods. Now, this made it tough for Christians because of the first commandment. As we're all well aware, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And so at this annual ritual that they were required to um, say Caesar is Lord, uh, many Christians uh, came under severe persecution. And it was all the more great because this was the capital city for Caesar worship. So that just kind of gives us a glimpse of uh, the world, the, the uh, society that this church was amidst. So what about the church? We know this about God, right? He is in the business of setting up lampstands in the middle of dark places, amen? Scholars aren't exactly sure how that church started out, but according to Acts chapter 16, we know that Paul passed through this area. The city of Pergamum was in a region of Asia Minor called Mycenae, and in Acts 19.10, the apostle Paul had a ministry in the city of Ephesus, and it was so powerful, it said, and so far-reaching that verse 10 says that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So at some point during Paul's preaching in Ephesus, the word spread, and I think we can pre- be uh, pretty certain that this was uh, a point in this time when this lampstand was established at Pergamum. Roman 1 helps us understand what Pergamum was like. And we'll conclude this intro. For although they knew God, they, nearly, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles Therefore, God gave them over into their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. All right. So that sets up kind of the stage for Pergamum, this church, this little church that is amidst this dark place. And, and so we get an idea and what weighed heavily on me is though we're kind of secluded here um, in this little community, you and I live in a world, make no mistake, that is much like Pergamum. And you and I know of cities in this country that are just like this city where sin is running rampant. And as we'll learn, compromise is amidst the church. And we need to be on guard against that. So let's begin uh, dissecting this text. First is the author. In verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum. So who is the angel of the church of Pergamum? Um, And the seven churches in each of these letters 
it all starts out to the angel. And so we're not totally clear if it's an angelic, you know, um, supernatural, one of God's angels, um, but we're pretty sure um, the word angelos, Greek word, also uh, refers to messenger. And so there's places in the Bible that it refers to man as an angelos or messenger. Uh, we see that in Matthew 11.10, where it refers to John the Baptist as one of God's angelos. And so um, it's believed that this messenger that we're uh, reading about here is a pastor of the church, a messenger that's going to take that message back to the church of Pergamum. All right, let's continue. To the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. So who is the author? And as we uh, learned last week um, in Ephesus, it's Jesus Christ here again. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 16, we're showing the vision, vision of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is described in verse 16 as having in his right hand seven stars, which, as you know, are the seven leaders of the seven churches. And it's noted for you in this same text. And out of his, out of his mouth, it says, came a sharp two-edged sword. So we know that without a doubt, again, this author is Jesus Christ himself. And in each letter, uh, as Jesus identifies himself, he uses one of his attributes to set the stage of the letter, the tone for which his letter is to come. And in this case, you're going to notice the description Christ selects is one of his authority or his, um, his attributes as judge to you and I and to the Church of Pergamos. These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. And we know too, that that double-edged sword in those days was a weapon. Um, and we've seen it often in text as we work through in the Bible that it, it was a, a weapon that cuts both ways, right? And you're going to either be on the side of the weapon and be protected by it, or you are going to be on the other side of that weapon and it's going to cut you down. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 12, 13 uh, says it well. For the Lord, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then in Revelation 19, we see the imagery in verse 15. Jesus Christ, in his return, is described here. Heaven opens in verse 11. A white horse, the one on it, is faithful and true. He comes in judgment and making war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And in verse 15, and from the mouth comes a sharp sword. And here it tells you what it is for, so that with it he may smite the nations. So this is clearly a word of judgment to the Pergamum church, which brings me to my first point in your worship folder. If we're going to avoid compromise in our church, we need to fear the Lord our God. This is not crippling fear, but one of reverence, just as we should rightly fear our earthly fathers. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now the word fear comes from the Hebrew word yira, and it can mean a few things. It can refer to the terror one feels, in frightening situation, as in Deuteronomy 2.25, it can mean respect in the way a servant fears his master. 
and it can also mean denote the reverence or awe a person feels in the presence of the greatness of God. And so the fear of the Lord is a combination of all these. So it's important that we ask ourselves today, do I truly fear the Lord? Not only for myself, and, and this one really hit me because as I was working through the text, we often try to apply it to our own lives. Do I fear the Lord my God for my neighbor? Do I love my neighbor? Do I see my neighbor where they're at? And as we're going to work through this text in the church, when I see my neighbor in trouble, do I go to him? So now on to verse 13. There's some good things to say here as Christ begins his letter. He says to them in verse 13, I know where you live. Christ is telling the Pergamos church, I understand the place you are living in. You and I serve a God that understands where we're at. He understands our pains, our temptations, our struggles, because he willingly lowered himself for you and I. We know that to be truth, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet, out of love for you and I, he made a choice. And you and I have to make that same choice every day. Um, Just one picture that I glimpsed as I was working through this text is when Jesus went to Mary and Martha, um, as he met them on the road, they were weeping bitterly because of their brother Lazarus. And as they were weeping, the, the thing that struck me, which was so profound, was, was Jesus knew the future, right? He knew that Lazarus would be raised to life again. He knew that. And yet, the text says, Jesus wept. And that encouraged me to know that when I go through difficult times, when you go through difficult times, when his faithful go through difficulty, and I want to clarify that for you, it's his faithful. All, all too often we promise those who aren't in Christ, we tell them the promises when they're going through difficult times, it's going to be okay, and we speak f- promises into their life, and I'll, I want to encourage you to be careful because those promises are only for his children, for his sheep. And so it was profound to me because Jesus sees us where we're at. He understands our pain. He knows us and he weeps with us even though he knows, like Lazarus, one day we will be raised to life. Amen? Um, And so Jesus goes on into verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now scholars aren't exactly sure what Jesus meant when he called Pergamos Satan's throne. Some think it's in reference to the altar of Zeus, which was in the shape of a great throne. This throne set on the Acropolis, which means the highest place of Pergamum, and is known today as one of the seven wonders of the world. Some think it was in reference to the required worship of Caesar as Lord. The one thing we know to be true about the throne of Satan, and I believe John MacArthur said it well, he said this, Make no mistake, Satan's throne is not in hell. It's in this world. Hell is the place of his incarceration. This world is the place of his operation. You and I, we need to remember that this world, this struggle that we go through, is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. The world we live in today, the struggles we're facing, they're similar. And like I said, as I work through this text, 
um, it just weighed on me, just uh, the compromises that I see in the Christian faith today. And so now as the church is surrounded with darkness, even though uh, the darkness is, seems to be closing in, as I said, remember, God sets up lampstands and uh, the gates of hell will not prevail. This little church in this dark city is a light. And, and Christ acknowledges that by saying, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And so praise God, this is a faithful church, right? They held to the doctrine. They held true to his name, right? And, and, and so they're moving forward, right? But as we're going to learn, like all churches, they have problems. Like our church, there are always going to be problems. All right, so there's reference to a man named Antipas. Who are we talking about here? Um, who was Antipas? Um, scholars, again, they're not exactly sure. And as, that's one thing I learned as I worked through some of these texts. You know, we're not always sure exactly what, um, what you know, is being said or who it's about. I guess to be more clear, um, what I'm saying is there's attributes, there's things, there's pieces in the text and it was a blessing to me as I worked through the text to pull those pieces out. You know, there's things important. We don't know exactly who Antipas was, and, and that's not what's important. What's important is we know who he was to Christ, right? And so it says, right, um, the two things in the text that stood out to me, and I'd encourage you to underline them, is the word my and then the words faithful witness. First off, Crisis use, uses the possessive noun, my, to convey Antipas' relationship to him. And like I said, although we're not exactly sure who he is, Christ calls him by name. And he, he uses the word my. And Jesus is the good shepherd, right? He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Second, um, I want you to understand that Antipas was a faithful witness of Christ. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Tell us, tells us what faith is. Be sure of what we hope for and of what we do not see. Perhaps no other component of the Christian life is more important than our faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter because in it great deeds of faith are described. By faith, Abel offered a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. By faith, Noah prepared the ark in time when rain was unknown. By faith, Abraham left his home and obeyed God's command to go, then willingly offered up his one and only son. By faith, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. By faith, Rahab received the spies of Israel and saved her life. So clearly, as we look at faith, our faith in the Christian faith, it is clearly uh, demonstrated by action, and, and Antipas's life was clearly faithful. And is our life faithful? Do we have that same faith today? You know, as I thought about that, you know, what we, the struggles we have to endure. And so James exhorts us to consider it pure joy when we fall into trials because the testing of our faith produces perseverance and matures us, providing the evidence that our faith is real. So the faithfulness of this church 
it should challenge both you and I. The faithfulness of Antipas and dying for his faith, being willing to lay everything down. Uh, what have you laid down in your life? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there should be action. There should be things I see in your life. You should see, see things in my life that I've laid down. My family should see them. And so I'd encourage you to examine your hearts. What have you laid down? So Pergamon was no doubt exhorted by Christ as a faithful church, but like all churches, as I said, had their problems. And so we see those problems. Christ uh, brings those problems uh, in verse 14. It says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So who was Balaam and who was Nicholas? Uh, we're not exactly sure, again, right? who Nicholas was. He's a New Testament um, individual, but it's believed that his teachings were similar to that of Balaam. And Balaam, we know, and we read about him in Numbers uh, 21 to 25, and we find uh, in that passage, Israel is camped in the plains of Moab, uh, and the king of Moab is afraid. He's heard uh, of the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt, and he's heard about all the uh, uh, people that they've conquered. Now they're sitting at his doorstep. He's fearful, and, and he's, he's uh, trying to figure out how to uh, defeat the Israelites. And so he comes up with a plan. I know this guy named Balaam. He's a prophet of God. He's heard about Balaam. And so he sends for Balaam. He says, I know if I can get Balaam uh, to help me, uh, God, to, to curse this nation, uh, we can defeat them because uh, Balaam's a prophet of God. And so, so Balak sends his uh, uh, messenger to uh, Balaam, or Balak sends his messenger to Balaam. Uh, Balak, of course, is the king of Moab. And uh, when he goes to Balaam, uh, his messengers uh, tell him the plan. Balaam says, I'll, I'll have to talk to God. He talks to God, and God says, no, don't go. The Israelites are my people. They're blessed. And so uh, Balaam tells uh, the messengers, go back to Balak. I can't do it. God says, no. Uh, ba Balak is uh, very persistent, sends another entourage, uh, more money, uh, uh, more prestigious people. And uh, Balaam's like, I really... I don't think I can do this. Let me go talk to God again. Maybe he's changed his mind, right? And so Balaam, in his heart, uh, is thinking this would be, I mean, there's riches here. There's uh, a lot that I can gain if God would just give me the go-ahead. And so he goes to God again and says, please give me permission. And, and God says, fine. And right when we keep going to God, if God tells us no once, that should be enough, but we just keep going back. Are you sure, God? You know, because, you know, this is something I think would really be good for me. And so he, he goes back to God again, and what does God do? He gives him over to his evil desires. And so he says, fine, go, but only say what I tell you to say. And so he goes. Uh, you will remember that the story of Balaam, he's riding his donkey, uh, the angels opposing him. We, we know that dialogue. Um, from our childhood, most of us, and that's a story. Um, but, but Balaam continues on. He gets to, to Balak, and 
and Balak tells him, I need you to curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam says, okay. And so they try three times. And what's God do? He puts a blessing into Balaam's mouth each time. And so Balak's furious. He said, what, what are you doing? We, we agreed on this, that you're going to curse them. And Balak said, or Balaam said, I tried, but God wouldn't let me. And so, um, so Balak's furious. You know, how, how am I going to defeat these people? And, and he's furious with Balaam. And so Balaam's like, how, how, how am I going to gain um, this wealth, this riches? And so he comes up with a plan. And that plan, I'm certain, came from Satan. And that plan wasn't the head-on plan. It's a plan of compromise. And, and Balaam told Balak to go to take all of the Moabite, the most beautiful Moabite women, and camp them within the Israelites, send them as friends, and seduce them. And once they've been seduced, um, they'll, they'll give in. They will give in to temptation. And you know what happened? It worked, right? Compromise worked. And so the, it says, the Israelite man... Israelite men began to intermarry with the world of the Moabites, and as they did, they were drawn into the pagan lifestyle Jesus speaks of in verse 14. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. The doctrine of Balaam is this. It teaches that the people of God can intermarry with unbelievers. It teaches that I am free in Jesus to do this or that without concern for my neighbor. The doctrine of Balaam perverts grace as a license to sin. So what was forgotten? When you and I truly surrender, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. The decisions you and I make not only affect ourselves, but our neighbors. And these, free, these freedoms that I see Christians often flaunting today are affecting their neighbors who are struggling in sin. Romans 6 says this, What then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so I just, as I work through this text again, I was just thinking of us today, the, the compromise that I'm concerned about in our church, in our lives, um, the divorce rate we know to be no different in the church than that in the world. And so I see Christians saying, you know what? What difference is it if I marry an unbeliever, right? You know, they love me. They treat me good. They, they know me. And, and, but they forget the God of the universe and his commandments. It says, as I was reading, God condemned such a union in Israel, here the Lord Jesus Christ condemns such a union in the world of Pergamum, and today he condemns such a union. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change, as we know. His words do not change. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, What fellowship has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? Be not unequally yoked together, with unbelievers. And so that's just something we need to be on guard for, to love our neighbor, to go to them, to make sure they understand the God whom we serve. Another common thing I see in, in our society today is couples that are living together unmarried. 
This commonplace in the world has also infiltrated Christ's church. Marriage, as we know, was created by God, right? And any sexual relationship outside of marriage is clearly a breaking of the seventh commandment. You should not commit adultery. Another thing that I see and one that really concerned me as I read through this text, spoke to my heart, is that I believe Satan's set up camp in our homes and in our lives today. Um, and he's set up close. He's not doing a full-on assault on us. He's coming in the back door and we're letting him in. Today we're so connected to our cell phones, to the internet, we're always one click away from compromise. I'm sure you've all heard the uh, rampant addictions to pornography. Statistics indicate that problem is no different in Christ's church. Jesus reminds us of the seventh commandment in Matthew 5, that adultery is more than just committing sin physically, but also mentally. He said this, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman in lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So to look at pornography is a breaking of the seventh commandment. We've placed that same technology and temptation into the hands of our children. That same temptation that we're struggling with. And so um, it weighed heavy on me thinking through that. You know, am I saying that Christians should not use cell phones or technology? No. Right? What I'm saying is this. Christ is warning the church of Pergamum. He's warning us that some of you, and note that, some of you, not all of you, some of you are struggling with compromise and living double lives. The temptation there amidst our family today as it was for the Israelites. Not all fell into compromise, but some did. And we need to heed Christ's warning. Um, and would it be so terrible that if we set apart, you know, we look at cell phones, technology is so needed, it's so necessary today. But is it? You know, I see some with flip phones still. And praise God for that. You know, it only allows us to text to talk. Do we need anything more? Um, you know, I enjoy the ability to just say, I got a question, go to it. But can that become a, a God to me? You bet. When I'm always going to that little phone for the answers, right? Or I'm one click away from temptation when I'm feeling weak. You and I got to be careful. And so this is a warning to you and I today. Be careful, right? Compromise. It seems so simple, but we are so weak, and we need to remember that. So why is Christ warning the Pergamum church today and, and, and us today? Please read verse 16 with me. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We are reminded again and again in the Bible the importance of repentance because there is a day coming where our sins, all of our sins, will be laid bare before the Lord because nothing is hidden from God's sight, and we will be judged for the things done in our bodies according to what we have done, whether it be good or evil. Uh, this brings us to our second point. Who should repent? Who is Christ talking to? Is it just those caught in compromise? I'd say no. Christ is calling the whole church to repent. And why is he doing that? Because they were doing nothing about it. They were faithful to Christ, but they were not loving their brother. So it's one thing for us to care enough about our neighbor to see their sin. We all too often look at it and judge it in judgment. We look at ourselves and 
it's not easy to love, as I said earlier, to fear the Lord for our neighbor, to fear that he is coming. And if we don't go to them to point them to their sin, he is going to come with a sword and fight against them. And so you and I need to love our neighbor. James 2.13 says this, Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Paul's letter to the Galatian church, he says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Then he goes on to say, Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. If you and I love our neighbors, if Christ be in us, then we're going to go to our neighbor. And we're going to love them as Christ loved us. We're going to love them as Christ loved us and pointed us to our sin. And we're not doing it in judgment. As a lot of the world says, well, Christians are so judgmental. We're going to go in mercy and say, hey, I love you. And and the Bible says that Christ is going to come and fight against you if you don't turn. And, and, And we need to have that heart. And it just brought me back to Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools will despise wisdom and instruction. And so again, I ask, do you fear God? You have to ask yourself, do I really revere him? Because there's a day coming, right? Which brings me to my final point. Don't delay. Jesus says today, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. But to the one who does not open that door, I am coming soon and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So please take note of the words, I am coming soon. As you're living your life, with, are you living your life with these words in mind? Because if you're not and you are blind to the commandments, you shall not have any of the other gods before me and the commandment, you shall not commit adultery as was done in the church of Pergamum. There's a day coming and he's going to come and he's coming soon. Now please remember that the sword is meant, again, it's going to either protect the one who is behind the one that wields it or it's going to cut down. James 4 says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot continue to live in sin, to live in compromise and be a follower of Jesus Christ. If this is you today, Jesus Christ says, Repent, because I am coming soon to fight against you. If you're saying to yourself, that's me, I'm living a life of compromise and I want to stop, but I don't know how. I've tried again and again and I feel terrible. I would say again to you, repent and then set pride aside because what's at stake? Your soul. And go to a sister or brother that you can trust. And if you don't have that, I encourage you to come to me or Pastor Joe, or one of the elders, or one of the leaders in the church, and, and repent and ask them for help to hold us accountable. Because this life, um, 
that you and I live in, it's a struggle. And I want you to remember that we have all sinned. And so there's a fear there in us that doesn't go, that doesn't want to open up about our sin, right? It's hidden, and yet um, if we allow that to hide in our hearts, uh, Satan has a foothold, and we're going to continue to struggle. And so I'd encourage you to go. So again, I want you to remember this, um, that going to our brother or sister is what God has called the body to do, right? We are the body of Christ, and we need to go to one another. And, and, and that's what God has placed us here today, is to be an encouragement to our neighbor, to love our neighbor. And, and I encourage you to do that today. Um, if you are a believer, as I said earlier, this is not just for the one who is in compromise. It's also for the believer in the church that maybe hasn't been caught in compromise, but um, know that there are members of the body of Christ. You knowingly know that they're caught in sin, but you haven't done anything to go to them. I would say to you today, and Christ says to you, repent. Because I'm coming soon to fight against your neighbors and your family whom you are called to love. And I'm going to fight with them with the sword of my mouth. Now, as hard as it's been to talk to you about the bad news, um, that's one thing I've learned. And uh, I just appreciate that when we don't know and we don't recognize our sin uh, that we're caught in, we just go about our day and we don't like to think about it. When the commandments open up, it's a mirror to us of who we are. And what it allows us to do is to see our need for Christ. Amen. And so that, that, that in my life has spoke volumes as I've learned that truth that the good news is only good news. It only can become great news to the sinner when they see, the, see how fallen they are and the, the depth of their sin, the separation that it causes between them and, and their Lord. And so... I'm glad that I can get finally to the good news. And that's found in verse 17. Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. It says, To the one who is victorious. So who is the one who is victorious? It's the overcomer. Every time we see the word overcomer in the book of Revelation, who is it? It's the believer. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says this. Who is the overcomer? It's the one who believes. To the true believer, those whose sins are washed away by the blood of Christ, he says this, I'll give some of the hidden manna. And so what's the hidden manna? According to Exodus 16:33, when the Israelites traveled, they took the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark they hid some manna. What did that represent? It represented the bread of life. And who is the bread of life? It's Jesus Christ, right? And Jesus Christ is the bread of life to the believer. He is living water. And he is the one, for the one who overcomes, uh, to, he is the only one that can satisfy. And 
for the overcomer, they will never thirst, they will never hunger again, you and I will be satisfied for all eternity. Um, And then finally Christ says this, and I will give the victor a white stone. And so what is the white stone? Again, uh, scholars aren't exactly sure, but the Pergamos church would have most likely understood it to be this. The white stone was a symbol given to victors when they won the games. That stone that they were given was their admission pass into the festival that was held following the games for all the victors. And likewise, there will come a day soon where all believers, the overcomers, will be given a pass by Jesus Christ to enter eternal glory. Um, And then the final statement Christ makes, a new name will be written on that stone which no one knows but to the one who receives it. And so what is the name that no one knows? I don't know. Right? We don't know. And why don't we know? Because Christ says the only one who knows what it says is the person who receives it. And that's how personal it is. It's a message. Right? Revelation 19, the only other passage I could find in Scripture uh, might give us a little insight. It says, uh, John says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name, and here it says, written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. So what is that name? It's likely a personal message from Christ to the one he loves, which is given as an admission pass into eternal glory. I'll know mine. You'll know yours, and we'll know the Lord wrote them for each one of us who overcomes. So let me conclude um, this message by reading from Jesus Christ's final remarks to the churches in Revelation 3. It says this, Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in and eat with them. And that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, would you pray with me as we close? Father in heaven, you are so good and so faithful. And Lord, I just pray um, that this body would be convicted and that your church um, would repent, Lord, where repentance is needed. And Father, that we would truly understand that you um, correct and rebuke us. And although it's difficult to hear, uh, Father, it's needed. And uh, Lord, we live in a world that is fallen. And Lord, help us not to be blind to that, but to be on guard. And Father, I thank you for this body, that your mercy would flow uh, through each one here, that hearts would be changed. And Lord, that as we go from this place, we would heed your words of warning. Lord, we would repent. Lord, that we would go to our neighbor in love. And Father, that your name would be glorified through this body. Lord, that we would be of one mind And that be of Christ, uh, putting you first on your throne. 
and putting others second. Lord, help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, may you be glorified this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank